Good evening, everyone. Very, very happy to be with you again this year. The way the world's going, we wonder if we'll be back next year, if we'll have another year. The best possible thing would be for the Lord Jesus Christ to come back and call us home. But he may call us home one by one. Who knows? We're not getting any younger. How do you like those notes? Boy, I really poured myself into those notes. You have seven points. If that's all you get out of this conference, then I think it will be worth your while. I left you some space to fill in. Believe it or not, I went through Habakkuk three separate times, came up with three separate sets of notes, which I have here with me, and I decided, you know what? I'm going to give you only the mountaintops, and then you can fill in whatever the Lord moves you, whatever strikes you, you'll be able to fill in uh, in, the, uh, in the little places that I left you, and it probably won't be enough, but you can write on the back of the pages. Thank you to Abundant Life Church. Thank you, Nick Cook and all the wonderful staff for allowing us to come back again. We always feel so honored and we feel so privileged. And uh, life's getting pretty exciting. Uh, we are living in amazing times and it's my prayer that this book is going to prepare and equip each and every one of us for whatever may lie ahead to better play the part that God has for us to play. How many of you know of a pastor out in California by the name of John MacArthur? A lot of you know of John MacArthur. How many of you have read his letter? His letter to Gavin Newsom. You haven't read it. You're going to hear it tonight. I, I have... A, a few theological differences with Dr. MacArthur, but I know one thing. He is a man of deep spiritual motivation and study, and he is a man of courage. I wish we had more pastors across this country like John MacArthur. One of my big regrets and frustrations in the past couple of years is that I was not pastoring a church because had I been pastoring a church, I would have had the opportunity to tell the government what they could do when they told me to shut down. My answer would be no. And John MacArthur kept his church open, and they began fining him and attacking him and ran up uh, fines in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, and he stood firm. But I'm going to begin tonight reading you a letter that I think every Christian across this country should read, and I wish every pastor would sign it, and not only send it to Gavin Newsom, but to a lot of people in Washington, D.C. This is to Governor Gavin Newsom, written September 29, 2022. Sir, Almighty God says in His Word, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Proverbs 14, 34. 
Scripture also teaches us that it is the chief duty of any civic leader to reward those who do well and to punish evildoers, Romans 13, 1 through 7. You have not only failed in that responsibility, you, return, you routinely turn it on its head, rewarding evildoers while punishing the righteous. The Word of God pronounces judgment on those who call evil good and good evil, Isaiah 5.20. And yet many of your policies reflect this unholy, upside-down view of honor and morality. The diabolical effects of your worldview are evident in the statistics of California's epidemics of crime, homelessness, sexual perversions like homosexuality and transgenderism, and other malignant expressions of human misery that stem directly from corrupt public policy. Think he's being a little bold here? I think so. He says, I don't need to itemize or elaborate on the many immoral decisions that you have perpetrated against God and the people of our state, which have only exacerbated these problems. Nevertheless, my goal in writing is not to contend with your politics, but rather to plead with you to hear and heed what the Word of God says to men in your position. Let all kings bow down before him and all nations serve him, Psalm 72, 11. He who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is as the light of the morning when the sun rises, 2 Samuel 23, 3 and 4. It is an abomination for kings to commit wicked acts, for a throne is established on righteousness, Proverbs 16, 12. What God said to Cyrus is a truth that you should take to heart. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Isaiah 45, 5 and 6. In mid-September, you revealed to the entire nation how thoroughly rebellious against God you are when you sponsored billboards across America promoting the slaughter of children whom he creates in the womb. Psalm 139, 13 through 16, Isaiah 45, 9 through 12. You further compounded the wickedness of that murderous campaign with a reprehensible act of gross blasphemy, quoting the very words of Jesus from Mark 12, 31, as if you could somehow twist his meaning and arrogate his name in favor of butchering unborn infants. You use the name and the words of Christ to promote the credo of Molech, Leviticus 21 through 5. It would be hard to imagine a greater sacrilege. Furthermore, you chose words from the lips of Jesus without admitting in the same moment he gave the greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Mark 12:30. You cannot love God as he commands while aiding in the murder of his image bearers. Psalm 50, 16 to 19. These passages speak to people who pervert the Word of God for their own sinful ends. But to the wicked God says, What right have you to recount my statutes and take my commandment in your mouth? For you hate discipline, you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you are pleased with him. You associate with adulterers, you let your mouth loose in evil, and you harness your tongue for deceit. My concern, Governor Newsom, is that your own soul lies in grave and eternal peril. For each one of us shall give an account of himself to God, according to Romans 14, 12. One day, 
not very long from now, you will face that reality. Nothing is more certain, for it is appointed for, to men to die once, and after this comes judgment, Hebrews 9.27. You will stand in the presence of the holy God who created you, who is your judge, and He will demand that you give an account for how you have flouted His authority in your governing and how you have twisted His own holy word to rationalize it. As you look over the precipice of eternity, what will your answer be? When you look ahead of you and see that nothing waits you but eternal misery, the just punishment for your sins, what will all the clever rationalizations and political talking points avail you then? By then it will be too late for any redemption or remedy, for it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10.31 My plea to you, sir, is that you will not let it come to that, that you would not go to that day of judgment apart from receiving the forgiveness and the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone. In Psalm 50, after rebuking the wicked for uttering God's words in a profane way, Scripture makes this promise. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there will be none to deliver. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving glorifies me, and he who orders his way I will show the salvation of God. Psalm 50, verses 22 and 23. So there is salvation for those who repent. Christ purchased full redemption for all who will turn from wickedness, forsake their evil thoughts and actions, and trust fully in Him as Lord and Savior. Our church and countless Christians nationwide are praying for your full repentance. And by the way, I would urge you to be praying for His and that of many other people. Please respond to the gospel, forsake the path of wickedness you have pursued all your life, turn to Christ, ask for forgiveness, and use your office to advance the cause of righteousness, as is your duty, instead of undermining it, as has been your pattern. Seek the Lord while He may be found, call upon Him while He is near, let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and He will have compassion on him and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Governor Newsom, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6, 2. For the master, pastor, teacher, John MacArthur. I would have thought that would have been worth a bit of applause. <clears throat> I would like that letter to be read in every church across this country and as I said I would like it to be sent to many many people in Washington DC as you look at your notes you're going to notice that there are seven passages taken from the book of Habakkuk this is the way the Hebrews say it this is the way the Pakistanis say it we say Habakkuk Habakkuk's name means embraced. Um, there are those who suggest that it actually means wrestler. In other words, he embraces by wrestling with God, sort of like Jacob did back in Genesis 32. And we are going to be in the book of Habakkuk, and we're going to look at the issue of when God judges a nation. I hope there isn't anyone here who has any question about whether this nation is under the just, just and righteous judgment of God.
and we see evil proliferating at every turn. We see politicians who are corrupt. We see judges. We see officials of the law. We see every bureaucracy has been corrupted and perverted and is now being used. Our, our enemy is not overseas anymore. Our enemy are the ones who are leading this nation. And they're leading this nation to destruction. And it was the same in the days of this man named Habakkuk. And so we're going to look at Habakkuk. And as I said in your notes, I've picked out seven passages because these are the highlights of the book. These are the bright rays of the sun coming through the dark clouds of judgment. We know that the key verse of the book is in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. The just shall live by faith. We'll have a lot to say about that. When we get to that passage, I'm going to give you just a little bit of background and then we're going to launch right into the book. Before we do that, as I stand here and recognize how completely helpless I am to do anything that will be a source of blessing to you apart from the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, join me in a word of prayer as we commit this time into His hands. Now, Heavenly Father, as we have come before the burning bush of divine revelation, we open the pages of Scripture. We stand in your very presence because your word assures us that as holy as your name is, you have magnified your word above your very name. We're going to see your name proclaimed in this book. We're going to come face to face with its author, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I pray that you will cause your mighty angels to take guard around this church, that you will keep out any malignant influence, any distraction from the enemy, that you will quiet our souls, that we will humble ourselves in your presence as Habakkuk urges us that we would be silent as we enter your presence and have ears to hear and hearts to receive and souls to be transformed. Father, sitting in this audience tonight are broken people. There are people who are carrying hurt and sorrow and suffering. There are people who are perplexed with life, perplexed with the world around us. There are people who are carrying secret burdens. While there may be a smile on their face, there may be tears in their soul. You alone know the hearts of men. You alone can meet and minister to each one of us according to our need. So may God the Holy Spirit now take up His sword and pierce our souls with the truth of Your Word. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. amen. Where is this book going to take us? This book is going to lead us from fear to faith. It's going to take us from discipline to deliverance. We're going to go from doubt to dedication. We're going to go from distress to faith rest. We're going to follow the journey that God took this very unique prophet through as he prepared his nation for the judgment of God. A little bit of historical background, the northern kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrians in 722 BC. Southern kingdom, Judah and Jerusalem, continued on because of some spiritual reforms that were carried out by Hezekiah and Josiah. 
Meanwhile, two major forces were developing on each side of the tiny little nation of Israel. The Assyrian Empire was overthrown. Nineveh was conquered by a man named Nebuchadnezzar. This man had a son named Nebuchadnezzar. You're much more familiar with him. And the Neo-Chaldean Empire, the Babylonian Empire, began to rise in the north. Meanwhile, the Egyptians were the power to the south, and of course the two were destined to collide, and they would collide right there in Israel. The good king Josiah, in fact, was killed on the battlefield as he fought against the forces of Pharaoh, and then of course Assyria came down and finished the job at a place called Carchemish, defeated the Egyptians, and then of course turned their eyes on the little kingdom of Judah. The pro prophetic context of the book, in the Old Testament we have 17 historical books, five books of wisdom, or what are often called poetical books, from Job through the Song of Solomon, and then we have 17 prophetic books. The prophetic books are divided into major and minor, not based on importance, but based on the length of the prophecies. So you have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. These are the major prophets. And then the minor prophets, of course, beginning with Hosea running through Malachi. I'll tell you something very interesting about the minor prophets. The minor prophets focus more on our time than the major prophets do. The major prophets were focused on the first coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the minor prophets focused primarily on the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, and so they speak very much to our time. The prophet Isaiah predicted the Assyrian captivity of the northern kingdom in Isaiah 10 and told those in Jerusalem not to fear him, but later in Isaiah chapter 3, he anticipated a hundred years before, actually more than a hundred years, 125 years before it came to pass that they would be defeated by Babylon. Jeremiah, of course, spent 40 years, and I'm giving you this background because when we look at the shock of Habakkuk, when he hears what's happening, surely he would have read Isaiah, a prophet that was over a hundred years before him. Surely he would have read Jeremiah. Surely he would have seen these things. But you know, to be told something that's going to happen or to read about something that's going to happen is entirely different than when you see it start to happen. We're living, of course, in historic times. I'm sure none of us three years ago could have imagined what the last three years would be like. And you know what? Sitting right here tonight, thinking that the world has gone crazy and that evil is just flourishing everywhere, there's not a one of us who could anticipate the things that we're about to see in the next year. We are at a critical time in history that is unparalleled. You and I are living right now in events that have never, ever happened before, conditions in this world that have never, ever existed before. And what these times and circumstances are going to require of us is very difficult to say, but I can say one thing, we're not ready. And we need to be preparing in every way that we possibly can. A quick, simple outline, if you'd like a three-point outline for the book of Habakkuk, you have the prophet wailing in chapter 1. You have the prophet waiting in chapter 2. 
And you have the prophet worshiping in chapter 3. Some of you just picked your pen up when I got to the third one, so I'm going to go through that again. Very simple. The prophet is wailing in chapter 1. He's crying. Then he is waiting in chapter 2. And then he's worshiping in chapter 3. The name Habakkuk comes from the Hebrew Habak. And Habakkuk has a message. And if you will, follow me through the first few verses here. Let's read verses 1 through 4 to start off with. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. O Lord, how long? Have you ever asked God how long? He has two questions for God. How long and why? How long and why? How long shall I cry and you will not hear, even cry to you? He uses two different Hebrew words here for cry. The first one is a piercing cry. The other is a shriek. It's like I'm crying and I'm intensely crying and now I'm shrieking. And how long do I have to keep praying before you answer my prayer? He seems to think that God doesn't hear his prayer. Have you ever felt that way? There are times when we pray, there are times when we plead, there are times when we agonize, and it seems as if God is distant or uninterested or apathetic or not listening. How long will I cry out to you violence and you will not save? Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. You know, it's a weird thing, as Dr. MacArthur pointed out in his letter to Gavin Newsom, that our entire judicial system in this nation has been turned upside down. Our judicial system now focuses on the innocent while letting the guilty go free. That is the order of the day in so many places across this land. So he says, the law is powerless, justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, therefore perverse judgment proceeds. I want you to notice a couple of things about the book that we're about to study. I want you to notice, first of all, that it is a burden. The word burden, the burden of Habakkuk is Masah, and it means to lift a heavy weight. To lift a heavy weight. It's a burden because he has to tell this message to his people. He has to tell his nation that invaders are coming. That they are going to break down the defenses, that they laugh at walls and other defensive measures. That they scoff at kings, that they think nothing of armies that they are rapid in their advance, that they are brutal in their conquest of a nation. And therefore, it's a burden. It's not only a burden. Notice it's a vision which the prophet Habakkuk saw. I think one of the reasons Habakkuk must have been so shocked is because what you and I read on these pages, he saw as if it was being played out on a screen. When you see the rape, the murder, the plunder of a nation... When you see slaughter everywhere you look, when you see the flocks taken, you see the crops destroyed, and you see the people brutally beaten, starved, 
and murdered. How would it shock your soul? This is what he saw. It's not only a burden and a vision, but it's also a written prophecy. God says, write the vision. We're going to see that when we get to chapter 2. There were many means of revelation in the Old Testament. God used dreams. God used visions. God sometimes used angels. All of these were preparatory to the greatest revelation of all, and that is the revelation of the face of God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The prayer of Habakkuk, as we read here in the first four verses, and basically the whole book is a dialogue between the prophet and God. They go back and forth. Uh, Habakkuk says his part, God answers. Habakkuk's not happy, so he responds again. God comes back with another answer, and we'll see that as we go through. But the prayer of Habakkuk should challenge us in our own prayer life, because I want you to see three things about it. Number one, he was persistent. He was persistent. When he prayed, he said, how long? How long must I pray? If you go to Daniel chapters 9 and 10, you see Daniel praying for the captives who would soon be going back into the land because having studied his scriptures and studied the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah, he realized that it was almost time for the captives to return back into the land. And so he begins praying. But he prays day after day as he fasts, as he dedicates himself, and he prays Days on end until three weeks have passed. And then finally, he gets the answer. Our prayers need to be persistent. Secondly, the motive is frustration and confusion. You know, there's no reason for us to try to play games with God. We do it with each other. People you haven't seen for a long time, and you meet them, and they ask, how are you? And you say, oh, I'm doing great, and you're really not. How are things going? Oh, things are going well. The Lord's really good. He's blessing me. And yet in our personal spiritual life, we may be wrestling with God. We may be contending with God. By the way, don't ever try to arm wrestle God, because I'll tell you one thing, He always wins. It's all right to be confused. It's all right to go before the Lord and say, what in the world is going on here? Why in the world am I going through the things that I'm going through? Why is this nation plunging into ever greater darkness and evil? His motive was confused. His goal was noble. Notice that he says, how long must I pray and you will not save? God has interesting ways of saving people in times of historical crisis. The interesting way that he is going to save his people of Judah, he's going to send the Babylonian army in, and the Babylonian army is going to destroy the kingdom of Judah. That's his solution. You say, well, if, God, if that's God's solutions, I don't know if I want to ask for any more. But he always has a perfect plan. And he always knows exactly how it needs to work out. Italy just recently elected a new prime minister. I don't know if you've kept up with what's going on in Europe. Uh, I would keep your eyes on Europe because what's happening over there is going to affect all of us. But uh, 
we'll have to wait and see. You know, politicians can look real good until they go to work, and then you find out they're the exact opposite of what you thought they were. But this lady, Maloney is her name, uh, very, very interesting lady. She said that her administration is going to be for God, family, and freedom. I could vote for a politician like that. But as she gave her acceptance speech, she quoted G.K. Chesterton, great Christian apologist from Great Britain 150 years or so ago. And this is what he said, fires will be kindled to testify to the fact that two and two equals four. Swords will be drawn to prove that the leaves are green in summer. We're here. This is where we are today. Because battles are being fought over questions and ideas that are just as crazy as all of these. I don't know if you've heard, but math is now white supremacist. It's a white supremacist construct, so you can no longer say two and two has to equal four. It can equal anything you want. I guess even numbers can self-identify. Notice in verses 3 and 4, there are seven evidences or seven indicators that God's judgment is already descending on the nation. Violence. This is widespread lawlessness. Iniquity refers to perversion or corruption. The word aon refers to that which is willful wickedness. He uses the word trouble, which means the disturbance of the peace and the upheaval in society. Plundering. The Hebrew word sod means the violent treatment of the weak, the strong, the powerful, the influential, devastating the poor and the weak. Strife and contention, of course, are linked with violence. The word is Hamas, and it refers to intentional malice and a desire to injure other people. Lawlessness, the law of God has now been neutralized in the land of Judah. Justice is perverted. The Hebrew akal means to bend or to twist something out of normal shape. Then we have the wicked favored, and the word wickedness is a very interesting word in Hebrew because it refers to something that has been completely deformed and destroyed from its natural God-given shape. In other words, the twisting of a soul, the twisting of a mind, the twisting of a heart into a shape that God never intended. These are the conditions, and so Habakkuk asked God, how long? How long? When are you going to answer me? So God answers. How would you like this answer? Begin with me here in verse 5. Look among the nations and watch. By the way, I would encourage you, keep your eyes on the nations. There are things happening that are so rapid and so deep in their meaning going on all over the world, and they're going to touch each and every one of us in the days ahead. Look among the nations. Why does God have to tell Habakkuk this? Because here's a danger that you and I run into. We start worrying about our own nation, and we get our eyes focused on our own nation, and we forget that God's plan is never a one-nation plan. Not even with Israel was his plan a one-nation plan. His plan for the nation of Israel was that Israel would be a light to the nations of the world and that the message of salvation and of the coming of the Messiah would go from there throughout the world. And of course we read of the uh, 
missionary efforts of Jonah. And I think a lot of people are kind of like Jonah today. Jonah would go to Nineveh, but only after getting swallowed and belched up by a fish. And even then, as he goes and he preaches in the streets of Nineveh, and the people in mass began to repent, he's angry. One of the most successful evangelists in all of history, and he's mad that his mission worked. Try to figure that one out. God's plan is a plan for the world. God loves all nations. God loves all men. Christ died for all. And we need to get our eyes into that worldview that recognizes the redemptive plan of God for the nations of the world. Look among the nations and be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe though it were told you. You know why God doesn't tell us sometimes what He's doing? We wouldn't believe it. We wouldn't believe it. Not only would we not believe it, we wouldn't like it. Frankly, I don't know that I would want God to tell me right now what's coming in America tomorrow because we may be under a nuclear mushroom cloud by the end of the week. I mean, we're being told by military experts as well as political leaders that we are closer to nuclear war than we have ever been. I don't know if that scares you. My hope is if a nuke comes, I hope it lands right on top of me. Because the fortunate ones would be the ones that are taken first. It would not be good to have to live through the aftermath. I will work a work in your days that you would not believe if it were told you, for indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans. Here you go, Habakkuk. Here is your answer. Nebuchadnezzar and his armies are going to come down and they are going to plunder your nation. He says they are a bitter and hasty nation. By the way, God almost always speaks uh, in undertones. Uh, he never exaggerates. Uh, if anything, He whispers and it shakes the world. So when God uses terms like this, you can imagine. They march through the breadth of the earth to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. You can take it to the bank. If God says they're terrible and dreadful, they're going to be horrible. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. In, in other words, they recognize no other ruler their horses are swifter than leopards. I like fast horses. I don't know that I'd want to ride one this fast. And more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. Actually, Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar developed military tactics that had never been seen in the ancient world. And they had a combined cavalry that was made up of cavalry who were uh, spear throwers and cavalry that were archers and they worked together in tactics that the world had never seen before and they just swept over all opposition. He says they fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. They have one thing on their mind and that is your destruction. Their faces are set like the east wind. In Scripture, in the ancient world, the east wind was always an ill omen. When the east wind blew, you knew it was going to be hot. You knew there was probably going to be drought. You knew that it was going to be blowing in with dust. Nothing good came of the east wind. And when you say of someone that their face is set like the east wind, 
usually they would bring the locust plagues as well out of the deserts. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold. You can't build a wall. You can't build a fort that is going to keep them out. They clap their hands over you for upon whom... Uh, sorry, for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. This is how they uh, overcome the uh, fortresses. They, they made siege mounds. This uh, verse here in verse 11 is actually a little bit difficult. There are 130 different translations of this verse. So if you ask me which one's the right one, I'm not going to try to sort through them. But I will suggest that what it says is, His mind changes like the wind and he turns and commits offenses and ascribes the power to his God. Habakkuk asked a question, and God answered him. How would you feel? What would you think? This is where your first verse comes in, because in the shock and the utter terror and the unbelief that God could allow something like this to happen, Habakkuk, like a drowning man, reaches out and grabs hold of the one solid thing that can stabilize his soul. And here it is in verse 13. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction. If you would, turn with me back to Deuteronomy 32, because I want you to see the foundation of what he's saying here, and then we're going to turn to the New Testament and pick up the idea, and uh, we will be done with this first session. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Beginning the final message of Moses to the children of Israel, he says in Deuteronomy 32, verse 1, and I'm just going to skip through several verses here. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as rain drops on the tender herb and as showers on the grass. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, Ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is He. Skip over to verse 15 as he describes the unfaithfulness of Israel. But Jeshurun, this is a tender word of affection of God for His people. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked you grew fat, you grew thick, you're obese. Then he forsook the God who made him and scornfully esteemed, here it is again, the rock of his salvation. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons and not to God. To gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals. Note verse 18, of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful, and you have forgotten the God who fathered you. Down to verse 30, how could one chase a thousand, and how could two put ten thousand to flight? 
unless the rock had sold them and the Lord had surrendered them. You see the idea of the rock coming through in the mind of Moses. And of course, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul is reviewing the marvelous and wonderful history of Israel. And he tells them in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 4, the rock that followed them was Christ. This is the focus. Habakkuk looks to the rock of his salvation. He looks to the only firm foundation that anyone can have. You know, I'm not opposed to the idea of prepping. I think anyone, the Proverbs tell us, if a wise man sees evil coming, he prepares for it. I would encourage you to prepare for the things that are coming, but above all, I encourage you, prepare your soul. Because as we work our way through this book, we are going to see a man confused with the evil of his times, confused about what God is doing, questioning whether God even hears his prayers, and he is going to come to the end of this book, and by the time we get to the end of the third chapter, we will read the most wonderful, the most beautiful, the most sublime statement of faith that is found anywhere in the Bible. A man who now is prepared to face whatever may come in the time in which he lives. The questions that gave Habakkuk nightmares are questions that you and I face today. We are facing times that I would say would even make what they went through look small. No one, of course, but God knows the future, but... Again, go back three years and ask yourself, could you have imagined the last three years be very difficult? What may lie ahead? And therefore, we're going to need that firm foundation. And the scripture reminds us that other foundation can no man lay than that which God has laid, which is Christ. And as we struggle with the issues, David in Psalm uh, chapter 3, four times he asked, how long, how long, how long? Asaph in Psalm 73 as he questions what God is doing and he says I almost lost my faith I almost came to a point where I threw in the towel on my faith why because I saw the wicked I saw their perversions I saw the evil and I saw that they were all prospering and he said I nearly stumbled and fell but then he remembered something he remembered what Habakkuk remembered and that is there is a just God who judges and justice is coming. And justice is coming to America. And justice is coming to this world. But what we may have to go through before that justice is accomplished may be a very rough ride. The questions of how God can use an evil nation to judge a nation that Habakkuk at least considered less evil. God didn't. You know, we like to play on the scale of big sins and little sins and black sins and white sins and those guys are worse than us and how could God use them to judge us? And that was the game that Habakkuk was playing. And of course, God wanted him to understand that evil's evil. And especially when a nation claims to be the people of God, when a nation has a motto, as we do, in God we trust, and then we flaunt our evil and our wickedness to the whole world. The Bible says, to whom much is given, much will be required. 
So I want you to write a word down because this is the topic we're dealing with. It's called theodicy. Theodicy. It's something you need to understand. Theodicy from theos, T-H-E-O, theos, God. The odyssey is from dikeo, which means justice or judgment. And so the issue is how can we justify a God who would use the Babylonians to judge his own people? Or to put it in terms that probably you've thought of more recently in your own life, how could a God of love let this happen? How could a God who is faithful, how could a God who is merciful allow a nation that was founded on principles that came right out of His Word and then allow us to plunge into the wickedness and the evil that we're in in the times in which we live? And should God choose to use another nation to judge this nation? And by the way, I don't see America in the book of Revelation to you. And I think the reason is because we're not going to be here as a nation. At least not as we exist now. How can God allow all of these things to happen? You, you see someone, a mother gives birth to a child. The child is the light and the joy of the life of this young couple. And then... God allows that little life to be snuffed out. Or worse yet, the child goes out to play and a van pulls up, someone jumps out of the van, drags the child in. Have you ever talked to a parent who's had to witness that and still wonders today, maybe 5, 10, 15 years later, is my child dead or alive? Are they living somewhere else? What happened to them? And when things like this touch us, we all recoil and we all ask the question, how could a loving God allow such a thing to happen? The atheists use the evil that's in the world as an argument against God. If God is loving and if God is all-powerful, how can He allow the evils that He allows? And what they don't realize is their argument is an argument for God. Because if there's no God, what do we define as evil? There's no standard, is there? It's just life is whatever you want to make it. Without an absolute standard, you can't have an absolute declaration of evil. But still we wrestle with the question. And I'm going to suggest to you that the answer is a very simple one. How can a loving and a caring and an all-powerful God allow the horrible things to happen that happen in this world? And the answer is because He is a loving God. And as a loving God, He gave a gift to members of the human race that He gave to nothing else. He gave the gift of being an image bearer of God and then mingled that with a second great gift. And that's called free will. And with free will comes tremendous responsibilities, tremendous accountability, and potential for tremendous good or tremendous evil and God we're told in many passages of scripture Joseph quoted it in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20 you intended these things against me for evil but God intended them for good we read in Romans 8 28 we know that God causes all things all things get that in your mind God causes all things to work together for good 
not for everyone, to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. Whatever may lie ahead in your future, a gracious and compassionate and loving God intends to use it for your good. And he has one undergirding, one overriding, one overarching motivation in all that happens. And Habakkuk's going to come to understand that. And that is his work of redemption. His work of redemption. When hurricanes hit, when homes are flooded, when people die, how many people suddenly wake up and say, Maybe I need to get right with God. Maybe it's time I begin thinking about spiritual realities. Maybe it's time, as John MacArthur urged Gavin Newsom, that I need to start thinking about one day I'm going to stand before the God who created me and put me on this earth. How will I give an answer for the life that I've lived? I never hear an ambulance without praying for the people who are going to come to Christ through whatever tragedy has happened. There's been a car wreck. There's someone who's had a heart attack. Whatever the situation may be, I pray for the paramedics. I pray for the first responders, not just that they will be able to deal with the situation, but above all, that somewhere along the line, as they look at the misery and the suffering, and we had a son working with the fire department for many, many years uh, as their uh, head medic, and you know what he told me one time? He said, I'm tired of seeing dead people. From one thing to the next, whether it's a car accident, whether it's a drug overdose, whether it's a, a stroke, a heart attack, whatever it may be, these are the people that deal with it all the time. But it's possible for those people to harden their hearts to death. It's a terrible thing when you get used to looking at death. It's not something you want to have happen because it means that your soul has become hardened. Every single person in those situations is a person for whom Christ died. Back in the Middle Ages, there was a philosopher who sent out to travel the world and, and study with other great minds and, and learn as much as he could about the world and about the developments of science that were taking place at that time. And he fell sick while he was in France and they hauled him into a hospital. You can imagine what a hospital was like back in those days. And as he lay there semi-conscious, the doctors were talking over him, and one doctor said to the other, he's nothing but a vagrant. He's only a common man. Let's use him for experiments. And he was awake enough that he was able to say, call no man common for whom Christ died. Call no man common for whom Christ died. Each and every one of you, I hope you understand, you are a unique creation of God. You have His fingerprints on you. You bear His image within you. He has a plan and a purpose for you right now in this time. It is not an accident that we were born in the time that we were born in, that we live in this time right now, and we need to be the ones prepared because you're going to have opportunities in the days ahead like you have never, ever seen before to point people to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As their foundations crumble, as their securities evaporate, as their souls are shaken, 
you and I are going to be the ones who are going to be able to stand there as Habakkuk comes to realize and give answers and hope and comfort. Let's make sure that we are prepared. Father, we are thankful for your grace. Bless our break. Let it be a time not just of refreshment, but fellowship as we meet and speak to and encourage one another. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.